Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. I'll be reading Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, I beg of you this morning that by your Spirit, you cause me to preach and to unfold the Gospel as a dying man to dying men and women and boys, and girls. And that by Your Spirit, You cause us to have ears to hear this glorious Gospel of our salvation. Amen. Picture a woman in an evangelical church in Texas. She's lived a morally upright life for the past 30 years. She's been faithful to her husband. She's helpful to her neighbors. She's honest in all her dealings. She's been a faithful church member. She's always there. And she's there to serve others. 10% of everything she gets, she gives to God. She's involved in missions. She helps out at the local food bank. She runs the women's Bible study in her church. And as she lays her head down on her pillow each night, she examines her life. And she prays, thank you, Jesus, that you have worked these righteous activities and way of life in me. I'm grateful for this righteousness that is evidenced in me, and I thank you for making me this way. So I'm not like that gangbanger that I saw on the way home today or like those drunks in the bar down the street or those gossiping women at the church tea. And therefore, Lord, 
based on that, based on what you have wrought in me, I'm good with you. I'm accepted by you. Our relationship is okay. Heaven is mine. I have righteousness working in me by your power. No, I'm not perfect, God, but the evidence of the work of your Spirit is there. And those activities I present before you by which I am justified by Jesus' blood. Assuming that her words in that prayer represent the reality of where she really does place her trust, Jesus will say to her one day, depart from me. I never knew you. She will go away, not justified. And the filthy drug dealer who recently heard the news about who Christ is and cried out, have mercy on me. He will go away justified before God. Okay. What I just did there, just put it up to the present day. This is how shocking Jesus' words to his original hearers in his context. And it ought to be shocking to the religious cultures of our present day. Here's Jesus' points right there in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Rather than the other. In this parable, Jesus lays out the heart of those who are justified by his blood. Now, he does not here in the parable give the whole shebang about justification by faith alone, and where it's based upon Christ alone and his substitutionary atonement on the cross and his substitutionary life. It's not all laid out in this parable. He, he, Jesus, will unpack that thoroughly decades later through his servant, the Apostle Paul. And the point is this then, as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read the Gospel, we cannot Take Jesus' words and His commands and His parables without seeing them on the foundation of His life and His sacrificial death and His resurrection. As He said in, in Mark, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but I came. Excuse me, what did I say? He did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom price for many. In other words, the life of Jesus. 
Not his death yet. You got to think about this. His life. His humanity. The life that he in true humanity lived in sinlessness. In perfect obedience to God's law. And his cross being slaughtered and killed as a substitute in His resurrection. He did all of that in the place of others so that His life lived would represent those others before God forever. So that His death that He died would represent Him being punished for their sins and it being satisfied and thus them being forgiven forever. Every word that we read in Luke, in Jesus' ministry, in His parables is standing on that foundation. Don't read them apart. That's how the Gospel writers write it. When Luke began to pen his narrative, he knew how it ended. And it's really where he began. We're meant to hear every word of Jesus in his earthly ministry through his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Jesus did not come just to teach sinners and to give commands and to tell parables called short stories. But he came to say, by his life and by his death and his resurrection. You remember how Luke began his gospel as he lets us know what the angel said to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Here's a, here's a, here it is. A Savior. Not merely a teacher. This is the one who by His life He was born to be slaughtered. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this means that Jesus' teachings and His commands are not just nice pieces of wisdom on how we can be a better husband or a better wife or a better parent or a better neighbor or how we can be more moral in our business practices or how we can love ourselves and feel good about ourselves better. But Jesus' words throughout the Gospel of Luke, like, unless you hate your father and your mother in comparison to me, You cannot be my disciple. Unless you lose your life, you will not have eternal life. Or His words like in our text, this guy, this moral guy, this religious guy went away. Not justified. 
But this other guy went away justified. Words like that, all of Jesus' words are to be understood in light of the goal of his life, the cross. Because when Jesus speaks, he speaks them in light of who he is and what he will do. And thus his words, and sometimes his very hard words, are him saying, this is what it looks like in those that I am saving by my blood. That is what I will be working in them. I have come to give my life. And then through his teachings and through his parables, he describes they are those people who by my spirit have had their eyes open to the beauty of God's salvation, which is Christ. They are those who have realized their wretched sinfulness before God and have turned away from trusting in anything about themselves before God. And have turned to trusting in me, Christ Jesus, is their righteousness. That's what's going on throughout the Gospels. That's the point of all of Jesus' instructions and His commands. And in our text, if you're there in Luke 18, notice how he begins. Luke lets us know Jesus is speaking to those people, to His fellow Jews, who do not understand justification. In other words, being saved by, being made right with God. They do not understand justification by faith alone, through Christ alone. These are ones who are not born again. In other words, like I just described, whose eyes have been opened to see. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable to, not about, but he told it to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, he's speaking to those who are not born again, like Abel. Like Abraham, like Caleb, like David. Don't miss it though. These guys he's speaking to, they were very religious. Church going, synagogue going. Read Scripture, quoted Scripture, loved Scripture. They talked about God all the time. And yet, they did not know how to get right with God. They loved the idea of the moral life. They loved the idea of commands from God, but they totally missed the point. They missed the point of the entirety of the Hebrew Scripture which lay there while Jesus is preaching called the Old Testament according to us. 
They missed the point that the entirety of the prophets and of Moses was pointing as, as a shadow to the reality of the One who was to come. They missed the point that the slaughter of animals in the tabernacle and in the temple, the priesthood, the Sabbath day, were all pointers to Christ. The reality and the fulfillment of it all. And Jesus came to reveal this. And more importantly, He came to be this on behalf of others. Like how Luke puts it. He says, and the, those Jews who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is what was happening and this is what did happen subsequently. Those Jews stumbled over Jesus, fell flat on their face. They so twisted who God really is and what His Word was about and became very religious with it, but absolutely missed what it was all pointing to. Just for a moment, I'm going to quote, you can either turn near or listen to how Jesus will say it through the Apostle Paul years later in Romans 9. Because as we read this, it's not only Jews then, but today, this very moment, Jews and Gentiles are stumbling, religiously stumbling over the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, starting with verse 30, writes, Gentiles, non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, their works, their obedience to the law, they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if, in that little Greek construction means it wasn't, but as if it were based on their works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone who is Christ. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they totally missed it. They did not understand the gospel of justification by faith alone through Christ alone. See, verse 14 there makes it clear that this parable is about justification. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. 
and not the other guy. It's a passive verb here. Let me just say something for a moment. The word justified and the word righteousness, the nouns and the verbs are all the same basic Greek word. To be justified or to be made righteous. That this guy was justified, it means, and it's a passive voice, he didn't do it. God did that. Which in that context means, this guy, as he left the temple... It was clear that God declared him to be righteous, justified, right with God. Before God's courtroom, absolutely blameless and positively upright. Before. This story that Jesus tells here is about how sinners connect with Jesus and thus are justified. This story is about how can any of us who are sinners, which is all of us, how can we be made right with God now and for all eternity? And it's also about how not to go about that. This is what you do not do. See verse 9? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's what you don't do. You don't trust in yourself, just what? That your actions, your devotions, your religiosity, your moral improvements, you don't trust in those things before God for your standing. In other words, to Avoid doing what these guys did. Every believer should be desperate to pay attention to Jesus' parable here. To pay attention to what this Pharisee was doing, what he was thinking, and what he was trusting in, in order to avoid it at all costs, because the stakes are really high. We must see in this parable what Jesus was so against by telling the story. So, start there with verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. And the other, a tax collector. We probably don't feel it like we're meant to or like they felt it. Tax collectors in the Jewish homeland in the first century under the Roman Empire were the scum of Jewish society. See, 
Rome to collect their taxes, would co- that they would contract out to other Romans who would get particular jurisdictions over an area that they had now the legal right to harvest the taxes from those subjects. And then what they would do in the Jewish homeland is they would then employ Jewish men to do the dirty work. And the way those guys got their pay was after they extracted the taxes people owed, anything else they can extort from them beyond that, that's what they pocket. They're the scum of first century Jewish society. On the other hand, the other guy in the temple praying is a Pharisee. Pharisees earned the reputation, according to the first century historian Josephus, of being that body of Jews known for surpassing the others in observance of piety and of exact interpretation of laws, the Bible. And so, Jesus starts this parable off on purpose to be radically provocative. He's telling it to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so he pits this stark contrast between the religious of the religious up against the non-religious scum who wasn't even allowed to go to the synagogue. And in the end, Jesus has that scumball get saved. And the religious, not. Notice how he paints the picture of the guy who, quote, according to verse 9, trusts in himself that he's righteous. The Pharisee, he presents himself to God as acting better than other people in his daily life. He says, I'm not like other men, extortioners, thieves, cheaters in business. I'm not like that. I'm upright. And I have no reason to doubt that the guy was in that sense. I'm not like others, unjust. I am morally just in my dealings. I'm not like others. I'm not like these adulterers. I am sexually moral. I don't cheat on my wife. In other words, in this sense, this guy was moral. His righteousness consisted of what we call a quote-unquote moral life. That's what he trusted in. His morally upright way of life. And that's what Jesus meant by some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. His righteousness consisted of his basic morality. The guy lived the basic moral code of the Bible. He was not only moral about his righteousness. 
But also, because lots of people can live morally in that sense and be an atheist, okay, this guy was also very religious and he appeals to that in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all that I get. The guy practiced spiritual disciplines. He practiced biblical disciplines. Okay. That's what he's trusting in. Now, pay attention to how Jesus, who's the storyteller, how Jesus has this guy pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank You that I am not like others. I thank You positively for my moral life and my religious life of righteousness. He thanked God for it. I thank You, God, that I'm upstanding, that I don't cheat people in business. I thank You that I'm religiously devout. You're going to take a chance. If you take a mirror to this guy and just tilt it forward into the future of today, I think this guy could be a young, restless, reformed person. All the praise he gave to God. He didn't say, I did it. He says, I thank you, God, for this. So thank you, God, that you have changed me. You have chosen me. You have called me. I can look back when you did that and see my moral improvement in my life. And it's all owing to you. My church going, my tithing, my giving, my Bible reading, love theology and reading those blogs, my life, I'm sexually living a pure life, I'm no longer a drunkard. And he could be the guy described. The Pharisee in the parable. Here's why I say that that's possible. The way Jesus words this, the problem with the Pharisee is not whether or not he took credit for it in the sense of this. I am innately righteous. I have inborn morality about me. That's not the issue here. It's whether he took credit for that, or whether he gave God, the sovereign one, all the credit for his moral life, his religious life, is not at issue. He thanked God for his life. The problem, either way, is this. He trusts in that life. In. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So don't miss what Jesus is saying. A person can attribute 
all the change in their life to God. They can attribute it to God the Holy Spirit working that in and through them and still be this Pharisee. The point is not that he trusted in himself to make himself righteous. He thanked God. The point is, he trusted in himself. That he was righteous. In other words, as he lays his head down on the pillow at night, along with our Christian woman from the Bible Belt, he says, did pretty good today. It's pretty moral. Some of that was a little hard, but I did it. I've been faithful again throughout my marriage to my wife. I tithe even from my herb garden. Bible reading. I didn't cheat anybody in business. Didn't lie to them. I was upright. I wasn't unjust. Thank you, God. Okay. I'm okay with you. Go to sleep tonight. Things are good between him and me. That's the point of verse 9. They trusted, it's the Greek word hati here. Just hati introduces the content of where he placed his trust. That they were righteous. And in the context of the parable, it is defined as being better than others through my actions and how I do morality and religiosity. And it is those actions that this guy thanked God for. Thank you that I'm different than others. Those now for whom I show contempt. So we need to hear as believers, and if you're not a believer, you need to hear it. But believers should never tire of hearing the clarity of the gospel. Hear it carefully. The problem was that these people, according to verse 9, trusted in their righteousness, their moral improvements, their accomplishments in life for their justification. Before God. It's not the same as salvation, but there is no salvation without being justified. It's a little bit more technical term of it. It's almost equivalent They trusted in it for their being made acceptable to God. When it comes to justification, and verse 14 makes it clear that that's the issue, this guy was trusting in the wrong thing. He was looking to the wrong foundation for his standing with God, for his righteousness with God. For his hearing the eternal verdict in the courtroom of God, he was totally standing on the wrong thing. He was looking 
at the wrong person. He was looking at the wrong righteousness. He was looking at the righteousness that he was experiencing himself act out in this life. Even if he attributed that happening to the sovereign God. He was looking, according to the text, to his sexual morality. To his purity. To his honesty. To his integrity. To his tithing. To his fasting. Now, that's what's defined as his righteousness. He was looking to that for his justification. Of why I'm good with God and I'm acceptable to God. What are you trusting in? That's the question. This guy lived a quote-unquote moral life. And he was very religious. And he believed God made him that way and thanked God for it. That is what he looked to for his justification before God. And thus, he totally missed salvation. The whole foundation of where he put his trust was the wrong foundation. What Jesus wants, and I'm, I'm so confident about it from this parable, because he called the Apostle Paul and taught him more thoroughly to lay it all out, and it's just so clear in Romans and Galatians. What Jesus wants us to see here is that all the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, believer, you know those good days? Okay. You know those bad days? You know better days? Than All of the moral improvements and obedience in your life to God by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, those right, that righteousness that you're called to, the holiness that every believer is called to, all the manifestations of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, your sexual morality, your financial integrity, your spiritual discipline, Jesus wants us to see very clearly that none of that is the foundation, is the source, is the ground yesterday, today, or tomorrow. It's never the source of your justification before God. That stuff is not how you are accepted by God. It's not how you are pardoned from your sin by God. It's not how or why you are viewed as perfectly righteous before God. 
got it. This is the gospel at its core. It is only Jesus' human, righteous obedience perfectly throughout His life that any other human being is ever righteous before God. And it is only because He mercifully and lovingly took the wrath of God against your sins that any human being has had God's wrath removed from them. Now, sadly, researchers surveyed 7,000 Protestant youths from many differing denominations asking, I'm going to give you three of the questions they ask, and ask them, do you agree or disagree with this statement? Raised up in our churches. Quote, the way to be accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life. More than 60% agree with that. Or, God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he can. Almost 70% of kids being raised in Protestant churches agreed with that. Or, the main emphasis of the gospel is on God's rules for right living. More than half of these kids agreed. At the evangelism table and throughout my life when I would ask people if you were to die and stand before God and He were to ask you why He should let you into heaven, what would you say? One of the predominant answers that I would hear constantly is something like, well, you know, I'm basically good. And, and I've never really hurt people. I mean, you know, we understand you know, mass murderers. No, no, not like that. In other words, I will stand there as their answer and present my righteousness to whatever degree. All the world's religions teach that we approach God based on our righteous, holy activity. Except for biblical Christianity. You see, and this was the main issue that split the church in the 1500s called the Great Reformation. It was the issue that the reformers protested about by getting back to the Bible and reading Jesus and reading Paul. When they protested against the Roman doctrine. And the Roman church, when I was raised up in, taught and still does teach that a person is saved by grace, through faith in Christ, but not by grace through faith in Christ alone. In addition, 
To believe in Christ, a person must add his own, even if that is Holy Spirit wrought in them, but you must add those own good activities, works, or deeds in your life in order to preserve your justification so you don't lose it, or to increase your justification before God. I'm just going to give you two statements from the Council of Trent, which was the response of the Roman church in the late 1500s, and to which in the Second Vatican Council of the 1960s, they have upheld. So it's just not, they still hold this. Quote, If anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification. That's exactly what I say. Let Joe be anathema. Okay. One more. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and the signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase of that justification. That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, let him be accursed. There was a divide in the 1500s, and that divide is still very huge. And since salvation rests on believing the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that He is our righteousness, the gospel of justification by faith alone, it is of paramount importance for every professing Christian to understand what the Scriptures teach on this. Here's the issue. Is you're alone with your own thoughts late at night lying in bed are you looking totally away from yourself to Christ? When you imagine yourself one day at the judgment bar of God before the infinitely holy God who's omniscient and He knows everything about you, about your inner life and about your outer life, and He knows it perfectly. What will you appeal to then? I exhort you to only look away. Not just then, but as a believer, day by day, as you put your head on the pillow, to look away from the extent of the sanctification and the works happening in your life, which you are to pursue, but when it comes to your acceptability before God and your eternal salvation, and is this resurrection that's coming going to happen, and am, 
Am I in? Look only to Jesus. To his life lived in your place. You don't want yours. You don't want to appeal to the judicial bar. No matter how squeaky clean any of us think you are. Look to Christ in Christ alone. That his sinless human life lived positively, worshipfully before the Father. Doing exactly what your forefather Adam failed to do. But here's the reality. Adam represented you. And thus he caused you to be born a sinner. Adam represented all of us and thus were condemned. But Jesus came to undo it. The eternal God became a human being and was tempted in all things as we were, yet without sin and in perfect obedience to be our representative. Look nowhere else but away from yourself. And that's what Jesus is pointing to in verses 13 and 14. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breasts, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified and not the other guy. The tax collector appealed to nothing in himself. He essentially said, I deserve what sinners deserve. I'm pleading for mercy. Be merciful to me. A sinner. Now, actually, that word merciful, it's the same word group in Greek where we get the word propitiation. Literally, a more clear translation would be, God, be propitious towards me. And now it's really helpful, propitiation, use it every day. Because that's the word of what Christ did on the cross. He propitiated the wrath of God. Which means... He turned God's justice in anger against sinners away so we can be saved. He did it by absorbing the punishment for our sin. He propitious. Be propitious towards me, a sinner, he says. Now, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, right? He's on the way to the cross, but after the cross, we know exactly what this means. This is how Paul said it in Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ, because it is, that message is, the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes. Because in the gospel, the righteousness, not of the Pharisee and not of you, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is the righteousness that Christ lived and imputes to others. As Christ in His humanity would stand before the judgment of God, absolutely perfect, He takes Himself and He cloaks every believer with that. And you stand before the judgment of God this very moment if He's your Savior. And when He comes back, as we've seen the previous three weeks, you will be cloaked with it for all eternity. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. Or 2,000 years later, He made it there. He suffered. He died, He was raised, and He ascended. And now we know much more clearly how it all works. Why is this parable true? How could you possibly justify this tax collector? Or me. This is how Paul wrote it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Him. The one who knew no sin. He did it so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. By trusting in Christ alone and all that He did for us and all that He is for us. We're united to Him. And His perfect humanity is put to our account. Just as He never sinned, but our sin was put to His account. Just as you have never committed one perfect act of righteousness in your entire existence. Yet Jesus' perfect righteousness is put to your account. Boy, it would be really cool if we can get one of these Pharisees saved and see what they would say. And we have one. His name is Paul. He was a Pharisee. Listen, picture Paul. He could be the guy in the temple praying that way because that's exactly who Paul was. But listen to what he says after Jesus miraculously got a hold of him and changed his heart to believe, to see, to love, and to cherish the gospel of his salvation. He says it this way in Romans 3, starting with verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I, Paul, have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Listen how he appeals to all his religiosity and that kind of right. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, 
a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had in that religiosity, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, Paul, count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my obedience to the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God to me that depends on faith. Or in Romans 3.28, Paul just said it clearly this way, for we hold, here's the gospel, this is what we hold to, that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4, 4 5, he put it this way, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, be merciful to me, a sinner. That guy's faith is counted as righteousness. See, that's just, that's just a taste. Because I know we're getting late. But it's so central to what Christianity is biblically. Don't get the gospel. Don't get Jesus wrong. And for Christ's sake, don't go away thinking that what you've heard the last 53 minutes is nitpicking. Where do you place your trust? Come on, we all love Jesus. What's the big deal? Just read the Bible and it'll tell you what the big deal is. And don't make the mistake of thinking, well, in the parable, the tax collector, he was scum, so of course he had nothing to trust in. But plead for mercy. Don't ever do that. Because that is exactly what the Pharisee did. I thank God that you have done something in me that causes me not to live like that tax collector, but to live a much better life. And that's what he was trusting in for his justification. Remember the sober words of verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The religious guy who put forward his morality and his religiosity was not justified, but he was condemned. Don't confuse 
the righteousness which Christ Jesus by His Spirit does produce in every believer. Don't confuse that holiness, that righteousness, with the righteousness of Jesus Himself. You know the term in the New Testament? Christ. Our righteousness. That's what it means. Only Jesus' perfect righteousness is the basis of believers' relationship, standing, justification with God. We're not okay based upon how well I did today. If you are a genuine believer, you are okay based upon what Christ did for you. And that will be your standing throughout eternity. Rest in that. Give God, all the glory for that in your life. To be in Christ is to be accepted by God as a sinner in myself, but accepted because Jesus took your place in living, took your place in dying. And so give Him all the glory for what it means to be justified, saved, cleansed, assured of the inheritance laid up for you in heaven, of the resurrection of your body one day, all owing to Christ. Give Him all the glory for that. And then, in a very different way, you give Him all the glory for the practical righteousness He does work out in those who have already been justified, not in order to be justified, as He works it out in your life. Come on, sirs. So, if this... Savior is yours. You have been justified by faith in Christ and you have confirmed that in your life through baptism. As we pass out the cup in the bread, then you are free to take and grab a hold of. If not, let it pass by you. And we will hold the cup in the bread and we will pray and partake over them together.